This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this is Christ speaking in parables. He's using the image of the pearl. And um, it's very helpful to, spew, to speak in terms of analogy and metaphor. And um, the reason for this is twofold. It's there are, um, as St. Augustine says, there are some things that just um, touch us more deeply if they are expressed in an image than they are, than they would touch us if they were expressed in plain speech. And um, there are also other realities which we can only understand through metaphors. And some of these are very central to our, our uh, Christian life. The church is the body of Christ. Of course, it's not the physical body of Christ, but Christ does have a human body. He's the head of the church. And so these are the great metaphors that, that explain God's merciful intervention in our lives in ways that we could we would stammer if we were trying to explain it in plain speech. Um, another image is the is the bride of Christ. So this is one reason why Christ spoke to us in parables. And here's the parable of the pearl of great price. Now the interesting thing here is that he says um, that he sold all that he had and bought it. Now um, there's a <laughs> These parables are, have a lot of finesse in them. So um, if you have $200 in the bank, you have enough funds to buy the pearl. That's all you've got. If you have a million dollars in the bank, then the pearl costs a million dollars. Do you see? You sell everything that you have, um, but you, there's no price tag attached. Um, and then when you get the pearl, there's going to be a little note with it that says, this pearl will never be lost. I'm, I'm speaking by experience here. Okay, so try it. Um, the pearl will never be lost. You can only separate yourself from the pearl if you throw it away, all right? So I'll explain that over the course of the weekend. Um, but, so you're going to wear the pearl, you're going to make a beautiful ring for it, all right? So you're going to make the finest gold, it's going to be a round ring, and it's going to have claws coming up that will hold the pearl, right? That's, that's how you make a ring. So the, the claws hold the pearl. If the pearl isn't there, the claws are very ugly, right? They're just made for the pearl. So what I want you to understand is that there are many different settings for the pearl throughout the, the ages. So there's the Dominican setting, there's the Benedictine setting, the Cistercian setting, all of these different ways. And there is even the setting that belongs to life in the world, even to um, uh, other choices besides these uh, monastic communities. And when, but the important thing is the pearl. And these early centuries of monasticism are the pearl. So it's so important for us and so helpful for us to look at this beginning because this is the heart. And this heart has, as, as um, Father Gabriel was saying, this heart has been with us ever since, and it is the one thing that you need to preserve above all else. 
So if any of you are thinking about religious life, you need to look for the pearl. You look for the setting, you see a setting that you think you can live in and that can be helpful, but you always look for the pearl. So what is the pearl? What is monasticism and what are, who are the monks? Um, so uh, monasticism was not a new phenomenon in the fourth century, but um, it had been more or less, um, it had been growing, and then for various reasons, in the fourth century, it bloomed, and it spread like wildfire all throughout the Mediterranean basin. So you have, um, uh, the Cashin will say, and I think that Father Gabriel will talk to you more about this, that really monasticism is in a sense of recovery of the early life of the church in Acts. It's the ideal life that's being lived. Now, um, there are certain qualifications that need to be made, and we'll talk about that later. Um, but it's interesting, the church historian Eusebius, who was writing at the beginning of the fourth century, um, talks about monasticism as a major um, movement in the church. And he says that the, one of the first things that God did was to establish monks and provide for them because they are in the front line of those who are advancing in Christ. So this is a very interesting statement coming from a bishop whose mainstream church in the early fourth century. That shows you how important it, the movement was and how quickly it was taking hold. Um, now, uh, St. Athanasius is, uh, was the um, Bishop of Alexandria. He wrote The Life of St. Anthony. This, he wrote it probably shortly after St. Anthony died in about 350, between 356 and 360. By 370, so 10 years later, it was already translated into Latin. And um, we have a very wonderful account of the effect of this life in the Confessions of St. Augustine. So St. Augustine was, um, as you know, he was a Manichaean. He was very disillusioned with the Manichaeans. So he was sort of nowhere. He was sort of stuck in a mess of sex and ambition. He was unhappy, looking for something better. And a friend of his, Ponticianus by name, um, started to talk to him about um, St. Anthony and what St. Anthony had done in the desert. And it just completely floored St. Augustine. And as a matter of fact, if you look, this is in Book 8 of the Confessions, uh, Chapter 7 and 8. This is the story, this is the, the climax that led to his conversion. And um, the first part of it was hearing about St. Anthony. And St. Augustine says... We were stupefied as we listened to the tale of the wonders you had worked within the true faith of the Catholic Church, so within the Orthodox faith, it's not some fringe movement, especially as they were most firmly attested by, the re by recent memory and had occurred so near to our own times. Um, that's actually in, uh, sorry, it's chapter, book eight, chapter six. So um, the interesting thing here is that it, it was recent history. It had happened very shortly before. It was within the mainstream church. 
And these were, and St. Anthony was this amazingly beautiful, holy monk. So St. Augustine's reaction was, well, why can't I do the same? Why can't I be like him? What's the matter with me? Why am I here? And then uh, he eventually went to his conversion. All right. So what is monastic life? Why was it so successful? What was going on when this completely overtook the Mediterranean world? So I'm going to give you some characteristics of it. First of all, it's a way of life. Now, by that I mean it's a certain attitude that you, you acquire, a way of looking at the world, looking at yourself, looking at life. And it is a, so it can be called an institution, but in the very broad sense. Um, so it was a, it was a, um, it was something that you could embrace. It wasn't some amorphous, um, just uh, beautiful stories about holy people. You could actually become one of those holy people. Um, now, it's very different from a lot of other spirituality that was floating around the Mediterranean at the time. And it's really unique. What makes it unique? It is totally centered on Christ. So this is very important. You have um, all sorts of different techniques. You had the Platonists, you had the Neoplatonists, you had uh, the Manichaeans, you had all of these different Gnostic sects, and they're continuing. You have um, New Age, you have Transcendental Meditation, you have all of these different techniques to advance in spirituality. But none of them will take you out of yourself and give you the possibility of being united to Christ and uh, being, and therefore being free of yourself and truly happy. And this, I cannot emphasize this as much, enough. Um, when I was in college, transcendental meditation was a thing. If anyone wants to talk about it, I don't know if it's still popular, but um, it's, uh, it's a kind of horrific charade of what monasticism is. So the goal is freedom of heart, what the ancients called purity of heart. And this is a heart that does not have junk in it. It's being cleaned out. Now in, in the Psalm, um, it says cor uh, mundum, that's what it is in Latin. And uh, it's, it, I think the new versions say, create in me a clean heart. That's really what it is. It's, uh, purity has other connotations, but what we're asking for is a heart that's been cleaned of all of the accumulated rust and junk that gets in it just by virtue of living. Um, that's the proximate goal. And the end is union with Christ in prayer. And uh, one of the uh, Makarios, who is my favorite desert father, and if you want, you can ask me about him and I'll tell you more about him later. Um, he, uh, so uh, Palladius, who wrote, writes something called the Lausiac History, which is a story of the monks, uh, various um, stories, says that at the end of his life, he lived more or less in continuous prayer. Um, that's the goal. And uh, you can... One of the things that you have to realize is that Christ is always at the center of this. This book is so beautiful. So this is the first icon 
that we have that's extant in the EB in the Coptic Church. Um, it's done with, uh, it's called encaustic, which is uh, hot wax, but it makes it very luminous. The colors are bright and it's luminous. And this is Christ. He's a little bigger than Menas. Can you see this? Can everyone see? And um, Christ has his arm around his shoulder. You can't get more, in I mean, as far as a visual image of intimacy, you can't get more intimate than that. They're both standing straight, looking ahead. Um, the style is to have very large eyes that symbolize um, the, the uh, contact with divinity and wisdom. Um, this is what, this is the goal, all right? To live always with Christ embracing us. Um, all right. So the goal, the, the approximate goal is freedom of heart. The end of it all is union with Christ in prayer. Now, it comes through the merciful intervention of God. It's not something that we can do on our own. And this is one of the ways in which it's very different from other forms of meditation. Um, just to take a contemporary, the Greeks, um, the Neoplatonists thought that we were actually, we had a divine spark in us. Part of us, the best of us, was actually divine. It was an emanation from the first principle. Um, the Christian monks sought the same uh, divinization, but they knew that it was God's work in them. It was not their work. And so what they did was prepare the ground, and God did the rest. And they were absolutely confident that he would. It's not as if they would spend their lives trying and maybe something would happen at the end. No. Um, as one of our abbots used to say, God is a perpetual invader. Um, if, I don't know if any of you have seen this picture. It's a nice, lovely 19th century picture. There's a door with ivy around it, and Jesus is knocking on the door. And it's very sweet, but then you look down and you notice there's no doorknob on the door. So he has to knock. He can't open the door. I mean, of course he can. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. But the, uh, the economy, the, 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 he's um, made us free. He's not going to violate our freedom. But if we open the door, he will come in. So every time we open the door, even a crack, he's there. And so you don't have to worry. He's, he's, he is your partner in all of this work that you do. Now, how do we prepare the soil? The first way is through scripture. So the monks basically lived scripture. They read it, they memorized it, they meditated on it. And meditating for them was um, repeating a little softly. So you would go... Um, you know, like that. And there are comments that people make, like, don't be so loud so that you disturb your neighbor. But they would repeat out loud. It's kind of like saying the rosary in a way. It's that um, the audible sound um, is grounding. It kept them grounded. And they went through, uh, some of them recited the whole Psalter every day. And they knew it all by heart. And they knew vast um, quantities of scripture. And what happens is that little by little, your, it informs your thoughts so that you become 
um, what scripture says. Um, it's kind of the Jesus prayer. It's kind of like that if you're familiar with it. Um, so scripture, and the other, then the other thing was the sacraments. And this is so um, beautiful. They didn't just rely on scripture alone. They were very faithful. Every now they didn't have. They didn't usually. The normal practice was not to have mass every day, but they had it every Sunday. And in the desert, they could be living far away, but they would all come together for mass on Sunday. And the, so the sacraments were very important for them. And also the church life, the community. They knew they couldn't do this on their own. There were outliers, but they were few and far between. And um, it was usually a very dangerous proposition to go off completely on your own. Now, the next thing is, there are two more things in this list. Um, well, maybe a few more. <laughs> the next thing is that they knew that they were sinners. And this is something that's very, um, it's a very wholesome, but it's also a very leveling factor. They all knew that they were sinners. And if you came out to the desert thinking that you were pretty, you know, pretty special, you would last about a day before somebody took you down. And they would do it kindly, they would do it gently, but they were very realistic. And they, anyone out there in the desert was no better than anyone else, anywhere else in, in, uh, uh, in the world. Um, and in fact, there's some very wonderful, if you want to look, Anthony 24. So these, um, these are all arranged alphabetically. This is the alphabetical series. So you can see, um, I'll just show you the table of contents here. You see it's all, it's all by the alphabet, the, the letters in the alphabet are the Greek alphabet, and then the most important ones are put underneath, and then the rest of them go alphabetically. So, for example, um, Anthony is the most important one, then Arsenius, so uh, it's A-N and then A-R, and then you go back to A-G, Agathon, and then you go through all the others. So they're not strictly alphabetical inside the, the letter. But um, in Anthony 24... <coughs> Um, God says to Anthony, you know, there's someone else around who's just as holy as you are. And he's a doctor living in a town, and he um, gives his surplus to the poor. And uh, it ends, and he says, and every day he says the Sanctus with the angels. So he's a very holy man. Uh, and uh, there are others. Um, you can look up um, under E. You can look up Stos, the secular. He's another one. So they knew very well that they were out in the desert, but they were not special. Um, they were like anyone else. The other thing is that they were very, they were not Gnostics. So the Gnostics were apart. They were, um, they, they did their own thing and they thought they were, I mean, other people were not enlightened the way they were. So none of this is in the desert tradition. And um, they, uh, and then finally, and this is the most, well, one of the most amazing. The, the big things are scripture, the sacraments, and the law of love. The fraternal charity between these monks is exquisite. Honestly, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. They took care of each other. They knew that the foundation of their life was uh, the, the, law, the, the, new, the law of the new covenant, to love God above all and to love their neighbor as themselves. And, you know, the desert was a dangerous place. They took care of each other very, 
seriously. So if someone was sick, they would come. Uh, there are stories about um, a monk who was sick and wasn't discovered right away, and the angels would come and uh, help them. So, I mean, that didn't happen to everyone. There were certainly accidents in the desert. But if you didn't show up for Mass on Sunday, some, they, would, they would go looking for you. And it's not just physically. Um, uh, Makarios was called the, the god of the world because he hid everyone's sins. He would not let them get away with them, but he would take care of them in the most kind and gentle manner imaginable. All right, now the last thing is that this was, a, I hate to call it a method because it's not a method. It's a method that takes everything out of you, um, but it worked. This was a way of doing things that had huge success. And honestly, that's a wonderful selling point. You're, if, you, if it works, you're going to go for it. Um, and uh, so that's the... That's what the monastic life is. And I'll just run through it very quickly. It's different from other kinds of um, spirituality. It's wholly centered on Christ. The, it is uh, made so that you can purify your heart. The goal is purity of heart. The end is union with God in prayer. It, uh, it, they understood that it, this was God's work. And it was a work of mercy, and we, they were preparing themselves for it. It was based on scripture. It was based on the sacraments, based on the church and the community of, that, of, um, of people sharing the same faith and sharing the same um, commandment of love. And uh, it was, um, and finally, it was possible. <coughs> Um, the monks, there's a very interesting um, comment from um, Pacomius. St. Pacomius founded um, the form of monastic life that was in southern Egypt. We're going to get into this in a minute. And he says uh, during his time, and he died in 346, 347, so um, uh, first half of the fourth century, he says, there are three very important things happening right now. There is Saint, there is Athanasius, who is fighting for orthodoxy. He was, um, the uh, Athanasius um, was the great apostle of orthodoxy against Arianism. There was, there was, uh, there is Anthony, who is living the, as a hermit. And there is um, our monasteries, the coin, it's called the koinonia, that's the Greek word, or chenobium in Latin. This is where they live the common life together in monasteries. So there was, there, and Pacomius understood that all of this was very significant for the church. Um, just to clarify, um, there were basically two forms of monasticism. There was the anchoritic form, which is basically people living alone, but living um, with uh, close enough with others. And we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the younger monks would come out and they would be the disciples of an older monk. So it was very much of an apprentice kind of situation. And then Pacomius founded monasteries where many monks would live together. And um, they, would, they were divided into houses. And each house had a, a two housemasters who were spiritual guides, but also organizational um, people. 
And so it was a way of having many, many monks together without making it feel like you're in a, you know, a group of a thousand. Um, the Pacomian monasteries got very large uh, by the end of the century. So um, we can talk about this more later, but um, we need to get on. All right, so why the desert? What happened? Why did they end up uh, in the desert? And I have a couple of handouts for you. Um, these are NASA satellite images, and I gave you the link on the second page so you can go look at them. So um, this one is the it's the more the paler one. Um, they're both from they're both NASA, but we just did two of them because the the uh, this one's a little um, more variegated. But if you look carefully, you can see. So look, this is Egypt. All right. It's the most amazing place. It's about 80% desert. And so if you want to think about living an alternative life, uh, you can stand on one side of the Nile and look across the Nile Valley and you can see the other desert. So it's a pretty easy proposition to think, well, I'll go live in the desert. And as a matter of fact, that's what happened. When people got into trouble, the easiest thing to do was just go get lost in the desert. And as long as you're near a water supply, then you can pretty much um, survive. Um, if you look in this image, you can see a little tiny uh, ribbon inside the, the, the Nile Valley. That's the Nile River. So it's an amazing thing. Can you see this little, um, it's just, that's the river. And everything on either side is the fertile strip. And everything else now there are oases. You see there's a very big oasis here, right here. This is called the Fayum. Um, Cairo, modern day Cairo is right where the Delta, just at the Delta where it begins. And this, uh, this is the Nile Delta. Um, Alexandria is right here under my fingers. So it's just to the left of the Delta. It's right, it's in the Delta, but right at the uh, left-hand side if you look on the map. The monks were, now, the Nile flows north, and so um, this is the upper Egypt, even though it's lower down on the map. This is lower Egypt, even though it's higher on the map. And um, if you look uh, on the, um, if you remember what the, the Pharaonic headdresses look like, there are two, there's a, um, a, a seraph, and uh, I forget, there are two, and a beetle, I forget. There are two animals there on the headdress. They represent upper and lower Egypt. And so the Pharaoh was, one of his primary responsibilities was to keep these two parts of Egypt united. Um, and in the interregnum, that's when uh, he failed and, there, and it was chaotic. Um, the Aswan Dam now is down here toward the bottom. This is a lake that is from the dam. And um, it's, it's kind of, well, I mean, it's good for agriculture. It's sad for us. But they, now they can control the, the flow of the, of the Nile. And so that's very helpful as far as um, uh, it used to be that there were three seasons in Egypt. There was the flooding season. They had what was called a Nile meter. They're the most amazing things I've seen um, pictures of them. And they, they have little uh, cuts in them. They measure how high up the, the river gets. 
And everything in Egypt is determined by the rise of the river. So how what the crops will be like, what their exports will be like, everything um, depended on the river. So it was a very kind of simple um, environment. Um, now that's not the case because of the dam. But um, the monks lived, so St. Anthony lived about here on the river, and then he moved over to the, uh, close to the Red Sea. Um, the, basically, this area here was where the monks were. There were three different establishments. They've done some excavations and they found some of them. We can talk about this later. Um, we don't have enough time to go in, but it's very, it's really wonderful and interesting. Um, so there were oases, there were every, obviously no one can live without water, but some of the monks lived very far from the water. It would take them a long time to go fill their jugs. Um, um, all right, so now let's just look briefly at this, at the names and the places here. So St. Anthony um, went out into the desert in about uh, 285. Um, he, he, uh, so he's the, he's not the first monk. When he decided to be a monk, he went to mass one Sunday and he was late. And when he came in, they were reading the gospel, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And that just hit him like, uh, it, it made such an impression on him that he went home and he did exactly that. He had a younger sister, his parents had died. He um, set aside enough money to care for her and then he uh, went out and he lived on the edge of the village. Now, this is a very Egyptian thing to do. You have the Nile going down and their village is all up and down it. And then none of them are very big because there's not a lot of space. They're on the edge of the Fertile Valley. And um, so he, and then, you, you know, you go out about five miles and you're in the desert. Uh, so he lived on the edge of his, of his village and there were, people, anchorites, who were already living the kind of life he wanted to live, and he would visit them. This is all in St. Athanasius' life. It's really a wonderful work. You can read it. Um, and then uh, he decided that that wasn't enough, and so he found an old fort on the edge of the Nile, and he barricaded himself in. There was a water, a well inside, and he's for about 20 years, he stayed there, and he was... He was a very, um, he was a man who had a lot of friends. People liked him and they were loyal to him. They would bring him food. They would come visit him and they would sometimes hear a huge ruckus going on and they were very scared. There's a little hole that they could look through <laughs> to see and he was all alone, but he was fighting the demons. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Um, and then uh, eventually they came and they broke down the door and he had no choice but to come out. And they were amazed to see that he just looked the same as he'd always looked. He thought, thought they thought that he was going to be all emaciated fasting the way he was fasting. And no, it was it was um, it was quite a wonderful triumph for um, his spiritual adventure that he was on. Um, and please ask me questions. We can talk more, but I have to. Um, I can't spend all night here. Um, all right, St. Pacomius is younger than St. Anthony, but he lived down, do you see the big bend in the river here? 
this big, uh, first big uh, blip. Um, this is where Pacomius was. And he, um, he just very quickly, he was a young man who was recruited into the army. And he, um, he was forced into it because of, during the war. As soon as he could get out, he did. Um, he, um, when he was in the army, he was, he, was, he was pagan, but he was treated so kindly by the Christians that he said, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be like this. So when he got out, he started to work on his monasteries, and um, eventually they became these large establishments. Um, so uh, St. Makarios, the Egyptian, he's the most wonderful. He's my hero. I'll tell you about him later. <laughs> St. Moses was a robber. He, and a, he murdered someone, and so he had to go out into the desert, and he decided to make the best of a bad deal. And he converted, and he became one of the best of the monks. Such a good man. Um, now, Evagrius and, uh, was from Constantinople, eventually, from, I mean, originally from Pontus. He knew St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, St. Gregory of Nyssa. He was part of that group. And he uh, also, he was, a, he was a great theorist. He has everything to say about fighting demons that you could possibly want to know. It's quite wonderful. Um, John Cashin was also in the desert, and then he ended up after a long um, period in the West, in France. And John Cashin is the one who really brought monasticism in a, in a theoretical, systematic way to the West. Okay, now what do you do when you go out into the desert? What happens, all right? So the first thing is that you get a habit. And the habit had a hood, so it's really interesting. The Dominicans still have hoods as part of it, and a scapular. And um, uh, they would have sheepskins also that they would um, probably sleep on and uh, do various things with. And um, you would have an Abba or an Ama, all right? That's the word for father and mother. And But it was an honorific title. And um, these people were tried in the monastic life. And at, this is, at the beginning, it was understood that these avas and amas had a charism to direct you. And so you could trust them. There was this wonderful relationship of trust between the, the young monk or the young nun and the older man or woman. And um, the, uh, so the, the, the Abba had a God-given charism, and the young monk had the responsibility of exercising discernment, all right? There are stories, and I think um, Father Gabriel may talk about one, where the old man, the Abba, does not live up to his charism, and um, it could be very damaging. So there's, this, there's no way to get around it. Everyone needed to exercise discernment, and that's true in any serious vocation. Um, and uh, I can, I have a, some, um, I'd love to read some of these um, apotegma to, to you, but I'm afraid that we're going to run out of time. The charism, now I'm saying this, I haven't read this in many books, but this is my opinion. Um, the charism still holds for these apotegma. Now, obviously, they're not in the same vein as they were when they were when they were reported. They were recorded, but 
what these sayings are, the, the, the way that it would work, I mean, the sort of um, schematic design is that a young monk would go to an older monk and they would say, Abba, give me a word. Tell me what I should do. And the Abba would assess the situation, would pray, and then say something. Not, uh, not necessarily because he wanted to, but because he felt that this was his responsibility. Um, you had to be very careful if you were too respectful. So with Makarios, if a young monk came and was bowing and being very reverent, Makarios would just send him away, wouldn't speak to him. But if you would say, oh, Makarios, when you were a camel driver and you stole niter and you, you resold it at a, uh, if you insulted him, then he'd be very happy and he would sit down and talk to you as much as he wanted. Because they, they didn't, they, this was not self-advertising on their part. And they took it very seriously. And this was the way that they formed monks. They formed the monks. And um, it was very, um, uh, so that's one reason why the Akotegmatar is so precious. These are not, this is not hagiography. This is not um, uh, exaggerated tales, though some of them seem to be maybe a little exaggerated. But um, this was really a handbook for the monks. And in the Eastern churches, they still use these. Um, there's a huge revival of Coptic monasticism in Egypt right now. And it's based on these um, sayings of the Desert Fathers. So I just want to read one. Um, I have two things that I want to read to you, and then I will finish. Um, so... Uh, Um, so this is number nine under St. Anthony. He says, our life and our death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we have gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against Christ. So it seems to me that that statement is something that we can take to heart very seriously. And it still has the charism so we're still in contact in some way with St. Anthony through the sayings. And um, the other one that I want to read, because we're going to be talking to you about demons, and um, it can be scary, but you should not be afraid. We're, and really, the monks were very realistic and very um, optimistic. Um, so uh, let's see, where is this? Here it is. All right. This is Abba Makarios. So when Abba Makarios was returning from the marsh to his cell one day, so the marsh, um, they would support themselves by weaving baskets. They, they would take the reeds out of a marsh, and there had to be water where at least to some, I mean, they had to be able to get to water for the, for, to have somebody to drink, but also the, the reeds would grow around the water source. And they would use these, and they would they would sell the, these at the market and make um, enough money to live off of. Um, it didn't make a lot of money, but they didn't need much. Um, so when Ma Abba Makarios was returning from the marsh to his cell one day, carrying some palm leaves, he met the devil on the road with a scythe. So the latter struck at him as much as he pleased, but in vain, and he said to him, what is your power, Makarios, that makes me powerless against you? All that you do, I do too. 
You fast, so do I. You keep vigil, and, do, and I do not sleep at all. In one thing only do you beat me. Abba Makarios asked what that was. The devil said, your humility. Because of that, I can do nothing against you. So this is interesting because um, it's humility that completely vanquishes the devil. And it's important to remember that, all right? Because um, we're, we're going to talk more about the temptations. It, um, Christ's temptations in the desert are sort of the model that they follow. But humility is simply being who you are. It's being realistic. It's being, um, it's assessing yourself, assessing your weaknesses before God. And that renders the devil completely powerless. So this is by a man named Eucarius. He was in France, so he was not in the desert because there are no deserts in France. But they brought the desert with them in their hearts. And this is called In Praise of the Desert. So I'm just going to read you the last three paragraphs. Um, in order that the people, sorry, in, uh, sorry, I made a mistake. In order for the people, that is the Israelites, he's talking about the Israelites in the desert. In order for the people to take possession of the land flowing with milk and honey, they first had to possess this parched and sterile wilderness. From the dwelling places in the desert, the road lies always open to our true homeland. Let those who desire Quote, to see the good things of the Lord in the land of the living, that's from a psalm, take up their residence in an uninhabitable wasteland. Let those who strive to become citizens of heaven be guests first of the desert. When our Lord reached the desert, he was served by ministering angels as if he had returned to heaven. There he confounded the ancient enemy who tempted him with the customary tricks of his art. And the new Adam drove off the seducer of the old Adam. What a triumph for the desert that the devil, who had been victorious in paradise, should be vanquished in a wasteland. Where, I ask, could anyone find a better opportunity to be still and see how sweet the Lord is. Where can a more direct path be found for those on the way to perfection? Where does a broader field lie, lie open for the practice of virtue? Where is there an easier place to guard the mind and free it for contemplation? Where could the heart be more free of concern in order to devote itself to cleaving to God. Nowhere but in those solitary places in which it is easy to find God and never lose him again. Are, is, there, is the tradition of Abba, Abbas and Amas still alive? Is it, is it possible to have an Amma? Really, I think in a way that's your question. And the answer is yes. Though um, I made a point of saying that the young person needs to exercise discernment and there's no way to get around that. Yes, you can. And I, I started to say that I had an ama 
before I even knew anything about this. So she was a wonderful woman. She had a very hard childhood. She grew up, um, when she, when she was young, she became a communist, which happened often, unfortunately. And in her thirties, she left communism and entered the Catholic church and spent the rest of her life helping young people not do what she did. And she was very, very helpful. Um, and she stepped in at a time when all of us, when we're young, we're very, um, we're, it's, I hate to use the word vulnerable, but we're open and things can go in one way or another very easily. And I remember one night, um, she had a group of us go up to, um, there was a Cistercian monastery, um, in Northern California, um, and we were going to help them uh, prepare for um, their fire check. So obviously you have to clear a lot of stuff away. I had learned how to use a scythe. It was very exciting. Um, and uh, I can remember one evening we were sitting there talking with her. And, you know, we just sort of ate her alive because she was so wonderful to us. And she, um, I think I was probably complaining and she said, she said to me, well, look, can you be happy without Jesus Christ? Can you live your life without him? And it was a very simple question. And I think that it was a question that was filled with the grace of God, though I didn't know it at the time. And I realized very clearly that my answer was no, I cannot live without him. And that was a turning point for me. And I think all of us um, have moments like that. And it's very, very helpful to have a wise voice near us when we're going through times like this. Um, I mean, when I went to college, just about the first thing that freshmen did was to lose the faith. It was terrible, but there was so much pressure on us. And um, so she saved me in a way. So I think that um, there, it's in the... In the states, at least, it seems to me that there are um, there are some good monasteries. There are also good groups like the Frasati group and Focus and various things like that, where you where there is the possibility of finding someone. Um, you don't necessarily need to have a spiritual director. I mean, it's great if you have a spiritual director who's a priest, then you can go to confession and you have everything together, which is wonderful. But you don't have to have that. What you mainly need is to have someone who's wise in the ways of spiritual life. Um, so, yes, it is possible. And if you think that God is calling you that, that, to look for someone, then by all means, look and pray and ask him. Pray hard. Um, one of the things that happened to me as a result of this wonderful ama, her name was Mary Jo, was that I began to pray for my, to know what my religious vocation was. And I prayed actually for quite a few years. And um, so praying, asking God to help you find the right person is very important. And you can be sure that he will answer you um, in one way or another. Um, the answer is, so the question is, is this radical form of, of religious life something that beginners can think about? Or is it only for the advance? So I have to tell you very, very clearly and resoundingly, it's for beginners, okay? It's not for the advanced. I mean, if you're advanced, you're already there, sort of. 
And um, we're all beginners. We never stop being beginners. And we, um, the, in fact, in some ways, I mean, it really depends. All of us have baggage that we need to clear out. And um, we've, you just, it takes a lifetime to do that. So it's really the distinction between being advanced and being a beginning a beginner kind of doesn't apply to this way of doing things. Um, the main thing is, I think the most important thing is to uh, be, is, is to, once you set yourself on this track, to be faithful to it. And that's hard. It's not easy. No one's saying that this is easy, but it is possible. It's totally doable. And if you, if everything that you do is based on um, a, a constant and a loving prayer to Christ, you will succeed. You're not, he's never going to let you go. This is the thing that, honestly, we are so stupid not to figure out just how much Christ loves us. I mean, if we knew, we would just be, we'd be, uh, we'd be flying, really. Um so don't, if there's no, uh, um, there's no reason to be discouraged. There's no reason to say, I can't do it. It's only for people who are holier than I. No, 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 that's not true. Why would someone like Makarios, who's supposed to be this very holy and wonderful man, turn someone away who's being very respectful and then take someone on who insults him? Um, the uh, the it, the reason for that is is complex. They wouldn't always do this. And one of the things that's very important, and you see this as you read through the Apotegmata, the sayings, they were very good at sizing up the people that came to them. And um, uh, Makarios was, as a matter of fact, um, I said I I think I mentioned that they called him the god of the of the world because he was so everyone loved him so much that he there was a kind of adulation that could be um, that could be part of the question and the monks were not tourist attractions and if somebody came out just because they wanted to see them. And this happened with Abba Moses. Somebody came out, they were there and they just wanted, well, we're in the desert, we're out here. So let's go see who Abba Moses is. And so they got instructions to go to his cell and they met this man on the way who was dressed in ragged clothing and he was, uh, um, didn't look at all respectable. And they said, can you please show us where, how to get to Abba Moses' house? And he said, why do you want to talk to him? He's a bandit. He's a bad man. He's no good, blah, blah, blah. So they were scandalized and they went back to the church and they said, you know, we wanted to see Abba Moses, but really it looks like he's not such a great man after all. And so they were shocked and they said, well, why did he say these things to you? And um, then they said, well, what does he look like? So they said he was big and he was black and he was wearing these clothes and everything. And they said to him, well, you just met Abba Moses, but he didn't want to talk to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, these people remind me of Padre Pio a little bit. They could be kind of uh, gruff. But with to get back to your question, basically, um, Makarios did not want to give serious advice 
to someone who was more interested in Makarios than he was interested in the monastic life. And so um, they really, these, these sayings were kind of pulled out of them. They didn't walk around making them. And so they, he would, um, he would be more comfortable really if he were around, if he, if he, if, uh, he were around people who really wanted the life and didn't care too much about him personally. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Um, now he could be, he could be the most gentle, kind person in the world. Um, so it, really a lot of it has to do with who the person is um, that's coming to see him. So the question is, I made this comment about somebody coming out with feathers and a little cocky um, that they would be taken down quite soon by these um, these uh, avas. And um, they would never... Um, so in the uh, monasteries where people lived the common life, as they became more organized, they would... Um, they would engage in forms of corporal punishment if somebody did something really wrong. But here, they would, um, they used much more um, compassionate and, no, I mean, I don't know. Some of these people, so in, in the rule of St. Benedict, um, he wrote the rule during the, the Gothic Wars in Italy and the Lombard invasions. There were some pretty rough and tumble people that came into the monastery. And Benedict would um, administer corporal punishment for people for whom he thought nothing else would really do. But he's very careful to say, don't do that unless you really need it. So, um, but they would do things like, um, Evagrius is a perfect example. He was um, very well educated. He was at the Council of Constantinople. He was assistant to Gregory Nazianzus. When Gregory Nazianzus, uh, Nazianzus left, he was um, the assistant to the new bishop. And he, um, he had to leave Constantinople very quickly because he fell in love with a married woman. Um, he had this terrible dream that something awful was going to happen to him, and probably it would have. So he left, and, but he was quite a dandy, actually. And he came to um, uh, the monastery of Melania, who was this wonderful Roman matron who had founded a monastery in Bethlehem. And um, Rufinus was her, the two of them were there together. He came there and um, he was in an emotional state and he couldn't, you know, he was, he's, he was in love. He was in love with himself. He was uh, dressed nicely and he tried to convert, but then things all hell broke loose and he got sick and he was sick for about six months. And finally, Melania, who was a wise old woman, said, you know, there's more going on here than meets the eye. So she got the whole story out of him. And she said, you've got to go to Egypt to become a monk. And so he went to, he followed her advice. He went to Egypt and, he, and it, he, everything turned out pretty well. But he was an example of someone. And so he would come and when they would have uh, councils, they'd get together to discuss things. He was right ready to uh, give his opinion. And um, so his spiritual father, who was another Makarios, the second one on the list, said to him, uh, Abba, we know 
that in your country you would have been a bishop, but here you're a foreigner. So he just cut him off. Do you see? So that's the kind of thing that I mean. They would see through the bluff and they would call them on it. Um, so it wouldn't be, um, if somebody did something really serious, so there's a story of, I believe this is Macarios, but I, I'm not sure. Um, so a monk had actually a woman in his cell and he was sinning with her and the others found out about it and they wanted to do something about it. And so no, it wasn't, I forget who it was. Anyway, the, so they called this other, this um, Abba in and the Abba looked to what came in, sized up the situation. The man had hidden the woman in a, in a, a barrel, a water barrel. <laughs> so he came in and he sat on the barrel and then they had a discussion and then he was the last one to leave. And he said, the, his parting words were, watch yourself, brother. Do you see? So he addressed the situation by letting the brother know that he knew exactly what was going on. But he saved him from the shame of uh, being um, exposed. So they really, um, does this sort of get, does this help you see what I'm getting at? Um, it, it was very much of a personal one-to-one -one, um, situation. Is a vocation something that is in that is in our hearts, so we have a sense of it, we're aware of it, or is it something that comes to us through the um, through consult, consulting with others, talking with others? So the answer is that there are many different ways to have a vocation. There are some. Who've had, a, who've had a sense that they have a vocation from the time that they were children. Um, then there are others like St. Paul, who's simply knocked off the horse and he's on the ground and he figures things out. And for most of us, it's somewhere in between. And so I think that it's a combination of arriving at certainty not complete certainty because you don't know. That's why the formation period is as long as it is to give people a chance to really be sure, um, sure enough to make vows, which are very serious commitments that this is the life for you. But certainly um, the, the one of the normal ways to receive a religious vocation is to talk to people about it, talk to them about, what your desires are, what your, um, how you want to see your life and how you can see your life given your personality. Um, not everyone is made for the contemplative life. Um, you know, there are people, if you put them in a monastery where they have to pray four hours a day, they'll just explode because they're not made for that. They're made for something else. Um, so I think that, um, the uh, it's very important to pray to know your vocation because what you are doing is saying, Lord, I want to serve you. Please show me how it is that you would like me to do this. So you're basically asking him to reveal to you his desire for your life instead of you deciding that you're going to make the decision. There are people, I've known people who have entered the religious life because it's the perfect life. And yes, perhaps it is the perfect life. If you read in the Summa, it is the highest form of um, re religious life. 
But if God doesn't want you to be a contemplative religion, then it's not the highest form for you, and you will probably be a bad religious. Do you see? So we all need to discern um, what is the, um, how does God's will manifest itself in my personal life? Um, now, Abba Moses, uh, Cashin says that Abba Moses got the vocation by necessity, okay? He was had his back against the wall. If he came, if he stayed in town, he would, they would come and kill him. So he went out into the monastery, but that's not the normal way to become a monk. Um, he succeeded, but it's not, I wouldn't try it. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, it's, it's Eusebius who said that the monks are in the front line of those who are advancing in Christ. And um, the general perception of monks is that they are actually retreating from the world so that they're, you wouldn't really say that they're in the front line, that they're totally engaged in the work of salvation. So what I would say is that the important thing to remember is that the um, we are so focused on um, what we do in our lives. So we want to be engaged in works of charity. We want to do what we can do to um, make the workplace, our country, everything as wholesome as it can be. So we're focused, and rightly so, that's our job. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But we have to remember that there is a spiritual component to everything that we do. And the monks, by their prayer and by being holy examples, are actually probably doing more for the salvation of the world than any activity that we can do. Um, It's it's interesting. One of the, um, the images for the contemplative nuns is that they are covering fire, meaning that you're in a war. And what you do is you have all of this covering fire to keep your enemy from becoming too aggressive. Um, And that's really, um, that's a very good image for the monk, the life of a monk. There is so much good that comes to the world through their prayer and through their lives. And it's because God is looking at this. God is in charge. Finally, we're not the ones that are in charge of our lives. I mean, we are to some degree. But we didn't make ourselves. We didn't spontaneously come into existence. And we can't live forever. I mean, those are the two terms. But God is in charge. And he sees the, um, he sees the spiritual good that is being um, laid over the world through this life of prayer. This is very clear in the Psalms. So in the Psalter, you have every aspect of human life passes through um, the Psalter. Um, and, uh, you know, does, do, does the, so uh, it was, um, it was either last, it was this morning. Was it this morning when we had Psalm 78 about all the infidelity of these? It's either last, yesterday or today, I forget. So it's this long, long Psalm, Psalm 78, and it goes through about all the infidelities of the Jews that they, you know, they weren't satisfied, they were thirsty, so they complained, and then God gave them water, and then they wanted flesh, so then he sent quail, and they were just, they kept going on and on, and finally God was getting pretty um, frustrated with them, and so he sent fire, and then, 
So all of these things that happen to them in, and that are described in the psalm. Now, when we go to church for this particular hour, do we all feel like singing the psalm? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, you don't get to say the psalms that you want to say. You say the psalms that are in the Psalter. But you know that while you're saying these psalms, you are, you are um, praying for all of those people who are frustrated, who are not able to see God's providence in their lives. And so all of this is the work of the church that we participate in. And all of that helps the, tr the, the world to be a better place. 